Well, hey, good morning once again, Gospel Hope. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, yeah, who said, who did the woo-woo? Oh, yeah, 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 I appreciate that, brother. I love it. Um, I am excited uh, to get up here. We have a lot of wood to chop this morning, so I'm going to uh, cut back on some of the prolegomena. If you're Googling that, it's just things that are said before, prologomena. All right, just in case anybody's got to take the SAT next week. Let's pray. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, would you please grab hold of this scrawny little man in your sovereign hand? And um, by your mercies, Lord God, allow me to be your tool of choice for just a few moments to be your people's tour guide through, Lord God, the history of your children, Israel, Lord God, and its relevance to us who sit here today. Lord God, we sit around your table. We await your feast. Would you work in me as deeply, Lord God, as you would anybody else in the room? Lord God, you know the content of all of our hearts as has already been said. And would you meet us, Lord God, by a demonstration of your spirit? Would you, would you speak to us in ways and speak to issues in our lives that there is absolutely no way that a human being could know these things and that the hearts that, are, that meet with your spirit in the course of this message are made to know that they have encountered your Holy Spirit. And in that encounter, oh God, I pray that we would be appropriately brought to our knees or either brought to our feet. Um, but Lord God, that we would reorient our hearts toward heaven. We would adore your son. We would talk glory, joyously and gladly about you on our way home in the car. We would appropriate the principles, Lord God, as quickly as Monday. We would savor your great truths in our community groups, and they would become, Lord God, just the immediate plug-ins into our lives. Lord God, would you please teach me? Would you teach us? Lord God, help me now to unpack faithfully and effectively, Lord God, your word for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that we would all be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Um, and then, Heavenly Father, help us to, as part of that great work, would you, Lord God, enable us to, to, to grab hold of some of these truths packaged in a way that would make us deployable, Lord God, action ready with the gospel to make disciples, Lord God, with some of these things. And I pray, oh God, for the person here who... Um, hasn't been to church in a long time, who does not know you, even though we may believe we know you. Lord God, would you search us, bring us down to our lowest common denominator, and would you bring about repentance in every single one of our heart? But Lord God, would you especially grab hold of the wayward heart that does not know you? Lord God, this is our earnest cry in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, um, just by show of hands, how many of you have been blessed by this series from the book of Numbers? Or maybe just say something, we'll, we'll, or whatever, if that's an appropriate religious word. Um, and if this is your first time stepping into the series with us, uh, would you also make a noise? 
Okay, okay, I'm good with that. I'm good with I like that. Well, that's, that's important because it lets me know how deep we need to go on this review. I mean, here it is. We are, we are waist deep in the book of Numbers. We're all the way up to chapters 22 through 25 is what I'll be um, covering today. And while that is quite a bit of ground to cover, it is a mere peephole into eternity. And while our view of the Almighty God will be limited, it will be accurate if, uh, if we peer correctly into uh, what the Lord has to say to us this morning. And so uh, with that, let's get started. This morning, I'm going to be talking about the jealousy of God, the jealousy of God. What an odd term. It doesn't seem as if jealousy and God or jealousy and Jesus would fit in the same sentence unless we were talking about somehow repentance. But uh, jealousy... Uh, in the, from the vantage point of that, that God uses it or that he shares it with us can be effectively defined as an intense protective commitment to his people and purposes. Jealousy, as defined by the way it is used of God in, this, in what we'll see in today's text, is it is an intense protective commitment to his people and purposes. And I, I want to help us with that and just kind of let that wash over you because I get it. When you think about jealousy, you think about two girls in high school fighting over a boy. Or perhaps you think about a neighbor who see you pull in with a brand new car and says, oh, how much, uh, I wonder how much they pay for that and can I get one too? When you think about jealousy, maybe you, you, you think about times in your own heart where perhaps you, you saw something that, that, that it, was, it was just kind of like a must-have in your life or either just grieved you to see someone else in it or do it. But, but that's, that, that's a very diminished and warped view of jealousy. God's jealousy, his jealousy for his people and for his purposes, is, it just expresses this. It is, a, it is an intense, protective commitment to his people and his purposes. This is a relevant thing to consider today. Uh, one, because it'll leap right off the pages of the text when we get here and read in just a few moments. But for those of you that are just joining us or you haven't been involved in all of the journey, let me give you some handlebars for today's message. As we have said, the book of Numbers uh, has great significance and relevance to the, the, the family of Israel first and foremost, because as Moses writes this and captures it, it will serve as a historical narrative for them to understand God's faithfulness throughout all generations. And this is very important for all believers to have some kind of diary of God's goodness. And the Lord allowed us to have the entirety of the Bible and the great narrative of redemption. And these stories are just as much for us as they were for Israel. This is defined for us by 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when it talks about our ability or, or, or the call and responsibility to win uh, the battle over temptation. It reaches back and says, and we need to look at the lives of our predecessors in the faith and learn from their example. And so this is why we are working through this. Well, what exactly are we looking to learn? Uh, over the course of these you know, chapters in this entire book, what I'm hoping that you're seeing uh, is what I would call a time-lapse photo of our own sanctification. In the New Testament, the Bible speaks very quickly. You are in Christ. You have been sanctified. And it talks about we've been, you know, God has guaranteed that he is going to conform us to the image of Christ. And it sounds very high-level and mystical, and we don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but the Old Testament gives us what I consider to be this slow motion or a time-lapse photo of what it looks like for our old man to die, our old woman to die, our old person to die, and our new person to come alive. Because that's exactly what we're seeing mapped out here as God walks this people through the wilderness. They are officially, legally, covenantally his. They belong to him. They are his. Just like we are God's when we place faith in Christ. 
However, we all know that the Israel that came out of Egypt will not be the one who enters into the promised land. And we also know that the same version of you that came to know Christ some years ago or some minutes ago will not be the same you that enters into the, the warm embrace of the Savior. And so this whole idea of killing the old man is very much a part of the New Testament believer's life. How does it happen? What does that mean? Is it just poetry? Is it just vivid language? Well, the book of Numbers has given us this wonderful page after page kind of template or demonstration for what that looks like. So number one, you can use the book of Numbers as your own time-lapse photo for some of the details of what God would do in our own lives as he's transforming us to the image of his son. Number two. As we watch God lead this people through some very perilous circumstances where all kinds of needs and crises uh, seem to appear, and he galvanizes how exactly they should trust him through them, this can also be our own analog for how we collectively as a people work through the pandemic, which is a, a season where day by day, we don't know what due to data points, new legislation, new details are, are going to come out or what new crises will impact our culture. And so we are also able to use uh, the book of Numbers as our own analog for how to work through a wilderness as we are, are faced by one. But also in your own local lives, in my individual life, there may be these micro wildernesses, issues in your family, issues in your heart, issues in your life, and issues in your body, things that, Lord, I don't know what's coming next, but I know I need you. I just don't know exactly how. Help me take my next step. Well, the book of Numbers is also useful in that regard. When we open the book of Numbers, we see God taking his holiness and concentrating it into this place called the tabernacle and teaching Israel how to model their lives around it. And then from that point forward, show them how to live life with his presence being central and his leadership being primary. Then... We see God showing them that when he's the one who's leading, they have great success, but when they get out in front and don't follow his lead, they experience great curses. And so we see also God teaching his people through the book of Numbers of how to establish a life rhythm that matches his rhythm, that matches his lead. This is all useful for us. There are various ways that we grow to know God through sanctification that by simply reading it, we could never know. I want you to realize that there are certain vocabulary words that we were raised knowing if you grew up in Sunday school, certain songs we grew to sing, uh, certain uh, texts that you have grown to be your favorites. And what God does through, through wildernesses and through the book of Numbers and also through the sanctification of the believer is he takes these very words that are uh, previously just on paper and he begins to tattoo them or inscribe them or carve them into our hearts. And so we ought not fret when we are encountering various wildernesses because it is through them that God wants to approve himself and to prove his power. So when we arrive at um, today's particular passage, and we're going to be talking about, again, the jealousy of God or the working definition, his intense protective commitment to his people, we've got quite an interesting story that serves as a backdrop. You've got a king um, named uh, Balak who sees Israel coming. And God has been working with them, and they have been experiencing great victory. They are growing in number, and they are gaining ground, and they have arrived at the borders of Moab. And the Moabite people, his, the king of that land in particular, is afraid. He looks out and sees the great number of them, and then he calls, recruits, and also contracts. That is, he pays a soothsayer, a false prophet, and he says, 
I don't want these guys to beat me. I'm going to set up seven altars, and we're going to go up into these high places and look down on them. You won't be able to see all of Israel, but whatever portion you can see, uh, uh, Balaam, will you go up and will you curse them? Will you speak over them? Because I know that if, that if, they're, if, they're, if, if, if they're blessed, they're blessed, but if we can curse them, I know they'll be cursed. And they won't be able to come in here and conquer us as a people. As a matter of fact, the, uh, uh, when, we, when we work through this, uh, I, I want to kind of show you something here. As a matter of fact, listen to these words uh, right here in uh, uh, tw- chapter 22, uh, verses 1 through 4. It says, And the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of the poor, saw all, of Israel, all that they had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. And Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, uh, this horde of people will now lick up all that is around us. And the, the ox, as the ox licks up the grass from the field, so uh, Balak and the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time. And so then he calls out to this prophet, Balaam, as I just said earlier, and recruits him to go to these three different lookouts and say, when you see these people, I want you to curse them. Now, what's interesting is that Israel has no idea that this is happening. But while it is happening, God is in the background or in the foreground working beautifully and wonderfully on their behalf. So I'm just kind of walking you through chapters 23 to 25. Now, what God does is this false prophet, Balaam, as he attempts to speak against God's people, he goes up to these various high places, and when he opens his mouth, despite the fact that he tries to curse God's people, God takes these words and actually makes them a blessing in the lives of Israel. And we'll cover one of those, those four discourses that he tries to utter against God's people. Each time Balaam makes an utterance, Balak gets frustrated because he says, man, I told you to curse them. What are you doing? It sounds like you're blessing them. But Balaam tells him, the reason that I'm not able to curse them is because they are blessed of God. But Israel, down on the ground, completely and totally unaware that this conniving, scandalous activity is even happening. And this brings me to kind of one of my, one of my first uh, ideas, and is this. While much of God's work is out of sight, it should never be out of mind. While much of God's work on our behalf is out of sight, it should never be out of mind. What are some of those works? We're going to cover them. When we look at chapters 22 through 25, we'll also see that the Lord is working on our behalf in ways that are invisible, but yet they are undeniable. The New Testament gives us a peep into this in the uh, the words of Paul over in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 10 through 11, or 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Listen to this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Some of your Bible may even say in high places. So here it is, Balak and his desire to curse Israel, they are totally unaware that there's someone scheming at this high level. They're totally unaware that there is a king, a throne, a principality that is working against them. But and while they are totally unaware, God is also working on their behalf. Balak, I believe, typifies for us in these four verses in his scandalous attempt to to speak against God's people a New Testament reality. And that is that while the work of our adversary is constant, it is predictable. 
The work of our adversary is constant, but yet it is predictable. But why is it predictable? Because of what the Bible says about it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The work of our adversary is constant, but it is predictable, but only because the Bible gives us the predictive pattern. Hint, hint, we need to be reading our Bible to raise our discernment so that we can understand more completely the schemes of the adversary, even though they may be invisible, they are indeed undeniable. Now, what's interesting here is what does the Bible call us to do in light of this invisible activity of the adversary, but yet this definitive activity of God? Well, there are several action words or verbs found there in 1 Peter that we're supposed to take on in light of this invisible activity. You saw the first ones about putting on the whole armor, but there's another here found in the book of Peter. He says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves there in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 8. Humble yourselves. Why? Well, first and foremost, the Bible has always told us that if there's anything that God hates, it is what? A proud look. That's right. This is a Bible church. Proud look, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, right? All those feet that be swift and run into mischief, right? Uh, uh, he that soweth discord among brethren and a false witness that beareth lies. We, we all know that list. We've got all seven of them memorized. So the Bible says, the Bible says, humble yourselves. Why is it that the first step in being able to, to understand or to benefit from God's work on my behalf is humility? Because humility says, God, I know that there are things that are happening above my pay grade, but not above yours. And I surrender myself and don't believe for any minute that I can work this out on my own. The life that you have called me to live is not just one of high effort, intensity, and zeal, but it's one that I can only do by your mighty hand. We must humble ourselves if we want to benefit from this great work that God is doing above and beyond and out of our view. But the Bible says not only to humble ourselves uh, so that at the proper time he may exalt us, but it also says casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This idea of casting my burdens or my anxieties on the Lord really resonated. If I was talking to an agrarian society, they would be like, "Woo, amen. Because having maybe ridden mules across great lands to get to the sanctuary today, they would have known how... um, Weird it might be for a person to have a beast next to them who could carry uh, uh, multiple loads, 10 times greater than their own, over vastly rugged terrain, but yet they choose to take it on their own shoulders. So when the Bible is constantly calling us to take off our burdens or to cast our anxieties on to the Lord, that's the imagery we invite into. How ridiculous is it for us to believe that as we encounter the various anxieties of life, that we somehow can work through them ourselves? The Lord says, bring me all those anxieties. Bring them to me by name. Load them onto me. My back is strong. My shoulders are broad. My abilities are better than yours. Let me carry that. I'm with you on this journey. Come on. Put the weight on me. As a matter of fact, if you put the weight on me, you jump on there with your stuff. I can carry all of it. This is the imagery that God invites us into when it comes to working through the great challenges of life. Many times I believe that we do well. We wake up in the morning and we ask the Lord for our daily bread. Give me that which is sufficient for me to navigate through this day. But do we also do equal equal work throughout the day to take off my burdens? Lord, I, I put this on your back. Now I'm trying to put it back on. I got to put this back on you, God. 
We live in a culture that praises and prides itself on independence, stick-to-itiveness, and, and personal industry. The ability to, to, to show myself strong and how I work through all kinds of crazy stuff. So it is so easy for us as a reflex to believe that it is a matter of weakness to put our burdens on others. And that same penchant, that same national mindset shows up in our theology, whether you like it or not. We have a reflex to want to go it alone and believe that there is great pride and great promise to be found in shouldering my own burdens. This is why the Bible calls us to be casting all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. But the Bible goes forward to say, be sober-minded and be watchful. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Um, the, the kind of the, the word picture or whatever, the, the, the mental moment I'd love to invite you into is think about when a parent takes a small child to the playground and how the child is just out there, I mean, just kind of wiping their nose with both sleeves, hugging people, coughing, you know, they're ripping each other's mask off if they're into mask, you know what I mean, this kind of thing. They're, they're, they're going up the sliding board backwards, all kinds of stuff that's putting them in peril. But what is the parent doing? The parent is like, oh, fully watchful, fully watchful, sober-minded, alert, Hopefully not, not living in anxiety, but out of a care for the child is constantly keeping a heads-up mentality. I believe the Bible calls us to be humble, to experience God's powerful hand. I believe it calls us to be constantly handing over our burdens. I believe it also calls us to have a great heads-up mentality, to be on the lookout for what's happening in our world and how these things may indeed compromise our faith. This is all God's call for even though the work may be invisible, it is indeed undeniable. And also while the work of our adversary is constant, it is a predictable work. But here is the height of where Satan's work becomes predictable. Look here at the next segment of the verse. It says, be watchful, period. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Again, we are not safari people. We're not lion people apart from zoos. But here's what I want you to feel, I want you to see, I want you to look carefully at the text. Lions looking for someone to devour uh, ought to draw us into this kind of herd mentality. I heard a great lecture about zebras, not a spiritual one, but just about zebras. Has anybody heard this about zebra and the nature of their stripes? Uh, this is, I read this a couple of days ago, I found it so fascinating. So, you know, most of the creatures that we observe uh, by way of their microevolution have adapted some kind of defense mechanism, either born with it or developed it over time. You know, whether it be, you know, their feet are, are you know, have adapted to be able to swim, or perhaps they've got a horn, or they got a stinger, or they got prongs, or they got speed, they got agility, or they have a special color to their coat that allows them to be camouflaged, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. We've seen that in animals. Well, where did the zebra get uh, camouflaged? In jail? Like, what is that? On a chain gang? Like, what is, the, what is all the strife for? There's no natural habitat that allows them to be camouflaged. But you know why? The camouflage is this. Lions will never take on a whole herd of zebra. They look for the one that's free because they need focus. Because when they're all running together, it's hard to focus on one because all them stripes running together. But so us, for us as believers... Our, one of our best defenses is not our individual prowess. You understand that even the most daunting and robust individual zebra can't whip a lion? But I mean, just three zebras running together is confusing, and their adversary, their predator, can't figure out which one he wants to pounce on. I, I say all this because I believe that there is great value in the community of the saints. 
One of the great promises of Scripture is that God, in this invisible work of our salvation, not only chose us and adopted us, but he also predestined us to be made like, more like his son, Jesus Christ. But then it says he placed us in the body. We have been baptized into the body of Christ with this specific connection to one another. There is a blessing that we experience as individual believers, but there is another blessing that is only available when believers are living collectively, and we have our, our camouflage, which is one another. It is our movement together that makes us less prone to fall and being preyed upon by the adversary. When Balak went up in the mountains, remember, the one thing that threw him off was not only their history of their success, but it was also the sheer size of them together. Constant, it was a theme over and over again. Look at how many of them there are. So when we are gathered together, there is a unique blessing that we experience. And so the, the Bible puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. It says, for just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink one spirit. God's work is both individual and communal. And to elevate one of those works without the other or to try to experience one blessing without the other is you're, you're compromised and you're not experiencing the full bouquet of what God wants to do, the full menu of what God wants to do in his power in your life. There is something about us together that is uniquely blessed, and this is going to become all the more applicable in just a few moments. So while Balak is very typical of the work of Satan, someone who is scheming against the believer from high places, but yet God has intervened in ways that we may not know, God calls us to even participate in this behavior or to participate in his saving strategy by being humble, handing over our burdens, having a heads-up mentality, and, and, and benefiting from the beauty of the camouflage of great community. But then there's something else happening here in chapter 27, verses 7 through 10. And Balaam took up discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has, has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob. Jacob is the nickname for Israel, right? Come curse Jacob for me. Come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see, and from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself amongst the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or the number of the fourth part of Jacob? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. In other words, here's a pagan prophet who is jealous of Israel's blessing. Lord, I wish you would work in my life like that. Here's a people that have no national flag, no known land that belongs to them, but man, they got this God on their side, and you can't even count the dust of them. This is one of the great promises that God made of Israel in Abraham, that they would have progeny. There would be this innumerable people who would grow to a size that would be like the sands on the seashore, the number of stars in the sky. This is one of the great promises of God for them. And here it is, someone, an outsider, looks at their lives, and they see God's promise on them. Here's what I believe also Israel is benefiting from in this moment. While even their adversary tries to speak against them, they're benefiting from this. The work of our God is eternal, historic, and practical. 
So not all of God's work is invisible or mystical or mysterious. It is both eternal, it is eternal, it is historic, and it is practical. Whether it be God's people benefiting from the Abrahamic covenant where he promises them both property, progeny, and prowess, or whether it be the Mosaic covenant where he says you will be ours, or whether it's the new covenant that you and I benefit from where if we place our faith in him, God says, I'll take care of all the rest. So I want you to see this, and I want you to see this clearly. Uh, Romans chapter 8, here's a New Testament glimpse. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34, a glimpse of the glory of the new covenant in which we are actively involved. Our covenant is better than any covenant that precedes. It says here, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not also give him graciously or give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that can condemn? It is Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of the God, right hand of God, and is indeed interceding for us? So the New Testament has the same portrait that Balaam discovers. Who can speak against these people? It's not possible. This is the same, this is the same kind of covenant that you and I are participating in, but an even greater covenant. In Israel, these kinds of covenant followed a certain uh, motif called the suzerainty vassal covenant. Y'all seminarians, I'm looking at you, boy, you know about that, huh? The suzerainty vassal covenant means that it's a suzerain is the greater one and the vassal is the lower one. And in the suzerainty vassal covenant, God invites the lesser person in and then he guarantees the outcomes because he recognizes that the weaker partner is not capable of upholding his end of the deal. It's not a partnership any whatsoever. And so in this, God is our suzerain. He is our superior one. But what is it that makes this covenant that we have with God so strong? What is it that makes his work so eternal, historic, and practical? Even as we look into the New Testament, I would invite you to enjoy this. My proof of insurance. I feel like, I feel like this is an appropriate analogy in many ways for the gospel. And here's why. Uh, this proof of insurance, this, this singular document... Uh, while it doesn't seem like much, it's just a little bitty piece of paper that I would obviously keep in my car in the event that I was pulled over. But behind this paper, behind this very simple gesture, is a massive organization to which ends I do not know. Is a litany of people standing by to take my call, should I be found on the roadside, or my house, I go home and my house is just burnt to the ground. Or even if I go out here and I get shot in the parking lot and I drop dead and, and they'll even, they can't replace me, but they'll step in monetarily in a way where my family will be like, man, we should have killed this joker earlier. <laughs> but this little, but this little card doesn't seem to be very, it doesn't seem like much. The verbiage on it is very simple, but behind it stands a massive amount of resources. I believe so much so is the gospel. It is a simple phraseology that someone would read it and say, how can this be all this powerful? But it ties us to the eternal, unsearchable capacity of God to take on any indemnity, any risk, to overcome and overwhelm anything that could possibly ever happen in our lives. That small statement, that simple truth of the gospel connects us to this incredible, eternal capacity that we know not the full length of. God is, has an eternal integrity that we can trust. God has a historical consistency. You know, the, the reason that I'm with these folks, this ain't no commercial. I hope we can blur this out. You know how they do on the internet. 
But the reason that I'm with these people is because I look at their track record in the lives of others, and I'm like, oh, okay, people who roll with them don't have issues. They have a history that I can trust. Well, your God has a history that we can trust also, and that's what is trapped and kept for us in the pages of the Old Testament is the history of this God that says we can trust him. But then there's also a great practical goodness. Simple blessings that we experience on a daily basis. All of these blessings are not just up high. They are brought low to us. And I get to avail myself of them as long as the premiums are paid. And in Christ, the premium has been paid. And so whether it be the, the simple or the deeply sophisticated, it is God who deploys and applies his eternal integrity to a people who may not deserve it. I mean, to get on with these folks, I did have to have a fairly decent driving record and to keep my premiums low, my credit score got to be all right. But in Christ, I can be a complete nincompoop and still qualify if I'll place faith in the Christ. You understand? Eternal integrity, historical consistency, and impractical goodness. But know this, that the goodness that Israel is experiencing, unbeknownst to them, is because God is good and merciful, not because they have goodness or any type of merit. They didn't achieve this status in God. But I'll tell you what's also interesting about this is when I have no casualties, when I have no issues that need to be indemnified, it is a mere piece of paper. It's just a receipt. And I feel like for us, many cases, the gospel can be relegated in this way. But when we're working through issues, when my, my faith is refined, the more I am compelled to rely on all his work. In other words, when I do have an issue and I have to pick up the phone, I'm like, oh, wow, this is what these premiums are about. Oh, wow, y'all do come out here at 2 a.m. Oh, wow, you will replace this roof in its entirety if y'all listen to tonight. <laughs> But, but think about it. It's not until we test. It's not until we are tested. We don't test the Lord, but he will test us. And it is Israel's movement throughout the wilderness that get them to realize that the covenant is not just some contract where we didn't read all the fine print. But there's stuff in there that while you may not fully understand, it still stands. I believe that for us as believers, we need to read her Bibles more deeply and not just in passing so that we understand, if you will, the fine print of the scriptures, so that we understand some of the detailed jargon that we might be uh, uh, concerned, you know, we skip over. When we, when we get a chance to sign a contract, what do we do? We want to make the minimum, a middle, the minimum amount of engagement to just get what we came to the table for. But standing behind that is a whole litany of prowess. And this is what God is inviting us into, to take the gospel more deeply and more seriously. Because he is doing a work, while it might be much out of sight, it should never be out of mind. What I find interesting is about these three distinct efforts of Balaam to curse God's people, all of them fail. These curses actually translate to blessings. But this is not atypical of God's movements. It was Joseph who first made us aware of this over in uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when he says, For to you, for as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people may be kept alive as are today. Even so, in the New Testament, we see the treachery of human hands plotting and scheming against the Lord Jesus Christ, feeling like they got, his, got their way by getting him out of the way, only to be playing into God's providence what they considered to be a curse, God made a blessing. 
So much so that God even took it a level deeper and said, you know what? Somebody needs to be cursed for these people because they're sinners. And so Jesus Christ becoming a curse, he curses anyone who, lays, who hangs on a tree that these people might live who place faith in him. So God is in the business of reversing curses. That's just what he does. And he gives us a kind of menu at a peephole of that right here as Balaam tries to curse God's people to no avail. Final point, and a tragic one. Here it is, Israel, unbeknownst to them, having a story, you got me, you know what's coming. I got a surprise for you too in the text today. Um, Here it is, Israel, unbeknownst to them, God is working for their good up in the hills, thwarting the curse that is against them and actually converting it to blessings, keeping principalities and thrones and strategies from negatively affecting them, but yet on the ground, They've opened the back door by opening themselves up to sin. What do I mean by opening the back door? Listen carefully. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And Israel yoked themselves to Baal Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And after this, the text gets really gritty. Because a lot of folks get killed after this by the wrath of God. And what's so interesting about this is you might wonder, how is it that a people that have experienced so much of God's goodness throughout the pages that at least that we've read, they experienced it in person, how can they go back to these troughs of fleshly work once again? Well, I ask the same question not only about Israel, but also of myself. I mean, none of my sin makes sense. In light of the great goodness of God, none of my sin makes sense. It's a pathological disorder almost. I mean, again, that's what I say here, that the work of our flesh is both peculiar and pathological. Is it it the product of a lack of intellect? No, I know what I'm doing. No, you know what you're doing. Is it a lack of desire to serve God? No, Israel knew that they wanted to experience the blessings of God. Is it a loss of hope? No, it's not. Is it a lapse of memory? No, they knew what God had done in their past. Is it a lack of willpower? No, they, they had done better things than this before. You know what it is? It's always the result of leasing space to the old man. When Israel went and dwelled in the land, they did not follow God's command, and that is not to intermingle. They, they again, they allowed the people of the land who had a, another theology and a contrary spirit to come in amongst them and to have safe haven. Now, you may be looking at this historically. I want you to look at this cardiologically. I want you to think about you and I and how we will go into places and provide, again, safe haven, residence, and lease a little space in the basement to an idea that should be fully put to death. But we don't, and it comes back to haunt us. Galatians chapter 5 begins to really unpack the pathological nature of the flesh and how illogical it is and how it seems to be tied to a much larger illness that defies the intellect. Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 24, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, enmity. Now, do you know if you take this list and you just break them up one and one, you're like, oh, a little bit of strife, you know, oh, to be human. But notice how when the Bible describes the works of the flesh, it doesn't describe them in segments. Like all this stuff be working in us. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
and things of the like. I warn you, and I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the spirit of, uh, excuse me, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So let the story continue. You see, the only solution to this pathological disorder of sin is not more intellect, not more effort, not more passion, not more books. You know what it is? The only solution for sin is to, according to the scripture, is to crucify the flesh with its passions. Now, here's where you should say, well, Pastor Rod, how do we do that? How do we crucify the flesh with its passions? Someone is about to tell us. Numbers chapter 25, verses 6 through 10, hold on to your seats. You may not like some of this, but the vividness of it is necessary to understand the jealousy of God. And behold, one of the Israel, people of Israel, uh, brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. And while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting, they're weeping because a plague has broken out and God has started to break necks for the previous indiscretion of bowing down to, to, to having these orgies and bowing down to Baal Peor. But stay with me real quick. And so the people are actively weeping in the tent. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through their belly. Thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So here it is, the last of the generation of the dead or the old man that God said wouldn't eat her in. But this vivid portrait of a person who was so brazen in their sin that they would walk in and bring a woman who had led, who of the people who had led them to bow down to an idol god, would bring her into the middle of the camp meeting. The Bible wanted us to see. The Bible could have skipped this. The Bible wanted to see that Phineas, operating under the zeal of the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of, uh, of Israel in my jealousy. Phineas threw a spear through two people at one time. What a great shot. But at the same time, why does the Bible want us to see this? Well, I believe the Bible wants us to see it as an echo of the words that we see at the end of Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with, the, with his passions and desires. Phineas, out of the zeal of the Lord, crucifies the old man of Israel with his passions. The inappropriate relationship that he brought in amongst the people. They had to be slain. Now, you might be thinking, oh, my gosh, what rating is this on Netflix? No, this is, this is what needs to be happening in us. I need to have the kind of zeal and passion. This is the level of zeal, a passion, vivid aggression that is required to put the old man to death. This isn't just moral behavior management. There are desires in us that need to be put to death. And the Bible says not just put to death. It says they need to be crucified. So how do we crucify them? Well, here's how. Here's how. Here's some very practical ways. Number one, if your old man is lurking, if your old man is trying to bring 
into your heart and parade around things that you do not honor God, the first thing you need is that needs to become public. Oh my gosh. Not on the screen, whatever, anything like that. But, but think about the community in which God has, has given us. There needs to at least be one godly person in your life who knows it all. There needs to be at least one godly person with whom you can be a totally transparent and vulnerable and you can make the works of the old man in your life public because crucifixion was public. They did not crucify Christ in the basement. It was an open show. And then God said he took that same open show and that he embarrassed principalities publicly. Like Satan has to be put on notice. And so in your life, put Satan on notice where the old man is prancing around. Will you go public? Will you find someone in the body of Christ? Not an old buddy from the bar in the world who'll be like, "Woo, you still doing that? But somebody in the body who will help you put that thing to death. Hopefully not another brother or sister who's got the same issue. Or y'all will be, "Woo, I thought I was the only one but you need somebody with whom you can publicly crucify because crucifixion is public. But crucifixion is also planned, it's not arbitrary. The people who put Jesus Christ on the cross, they had a clear plan and strategy to do that. And guess what? While they thought they were getting rid of the king, they were also playing it to God's hand. God also had a clear plan and strategy. According to the scriptures, it says that it was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that Christ went to the cross. And so I believe that we need to have a plan for how we deal with the old man in our life. It shouldn't just be this arbitrary firefight or, or, you know, uh, a fighting of swords when you feel this particular temptation coming on. The old man needs to be publicly exposed, and we need to have a planned means of dealing with him. This is how we put him to death. So that there's another set of eyes in your life, another zebra, if you will, who can, who can help you understand where you typically seem to fall into these same areas. I mean, how beautiful would it be if you were a person who has a cyclical or situational sin in your life and you get with another brother or sister and they begin to say, hey, man, I'm sure glad you brought this to me, but, but you know, we've been walking together for a few years, a few months. Do you realize that this always happens when this other thing is happening in your life? We need that additional perspective. Crucify the old man. It needs to be public. It needs to be planned. But guess what? It also needs to be pointed. No play on words, but that spirit, it went through both of them. It needs to be pointed. We need to be dealing with the real issue. Every single sin in me, every single behavior is connected to a blind spot or a belief that needs to be dealt with in my life. It needs to be pointed. Believers, do not do yourselves a disservice by running around talking to other believers and be like, well, you know, just in this season, you know, in my life, there's just a lot of valleys that I'm working through. Could you pray for me? Well, we will. But you need somebody in your life where you define what those valleys are. That valley has a name. That valley has a location. That valley has, a, has some, some real things that need to be looked at. And so I know this was an intense view. But I believe that God intentionally gave us this intense view of how vivid it is to have to put the old man to death because he wants to raise our level of seriousness around what it means to fight sin. I need to put the old man to death because he's bold. He'll walk up in some of the most sacred spaces of my life and parade things that ought not be paraded. So the only solution is to crucify the flesh with its passions. 
I want to pray for us today that we would adopt the same zeal that Phineas had, that we would follow the lead of the Holy Spirit as he cries out to us, let's put this thing to death. Let's not let the old man run rush out in our lives, and let's not try to live a, 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 a solo or Lone Ranger-style Christianity. Let us live more deeply and communally and know that there is a power in that, that God, it, it blesses those relationships with. So again, the Lord has an intense and protective commitment to his people and to his purposes. And while much of God's work is out of sight, it should never be out of mind. This work of God on the cross should never be out of mind. We should savor it. We should look over it. We should long for it. We should ask the Lord to give us zeal to apply it deeply in our lives. And let's do that right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come um, today asking that you would increase my zeal. Lord God, that I, would, that I would preach to myself with the same vigor that I preach to others. I pray, oh God, that I, would, that I would with the same vigor as Phineas fight hard to find the old man who is rude and licentious and boundaryless walking around in my heart, oh God, and that I would crucify him. I would not court him. I would not give him a room in the basement. I would not ask him to be quiet during sacred moments. But Lord God, I pray that you would teach us, show us how to literally slay him. And Lord God, I, I, I just believe that in Christ, you've already, Heavenly Father, given victory over sin. The old man is a dead man walking. He cannot fight us. He is simply allowed to walk into the back door of our lives. Lord God, forgive us. In all that you're doing in the areas that we cannot see, that we would just let the old man prance around, Lord God, in plain sight. Lord God, help us to get transparent and get particular and get real in all of our relationships that we might know sanctification the way you desire for your people. I thank you for your invisible work, and I thank you for your undeniable work. And I ask, oh God, that you would make me aware of just some additional chapters of your eternal work in Christ. Those that I am blind to that get in the way of me living more robustly for you. Lord God, I pray this not only for me, but for all those who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen.